Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. I am Tuvia Kopstein, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, we meet Suzanne Spanner of Meeting Matchmakers. What Suzanne does is she helps clients book events with hotels. I don't know if it's national or international, and she knows how to do it because she spent so many years on the inside, on the hotel side of the industry, of the hospitality industry, in the finance and in the sales, and really understanding the entire industry, as you'll hear in her story, from top to bottom, all the aspects that go into the hotel industry. And she talks about how her career involved into booking the kosher clientele. And But most of the episode you'll, you'll hear is Suzanne's fascinating story of personal transformation. And as I say on the podcast, I had no idea that the podcast would go in this direction, but I couldn't stop because it was so interesting to hear her story. It's amazing. You'll love it. And without further ado, oh, yes, further ado, the podcast fellowship is what powers our tribe. The podcast, the podcast fellowship is, you can find out about it at podcastfellowship.org. We are an international nonprofit that is helping Jewish young adults all over the world connect and understand what Judaism has to teach by learning, listening to podcasts, and discussing them with a local mentor, no matter where they are in the world, and earning a stipend thereby. Now, our tribe, the podcast with Suzanne Spanner. Here we go. Enjoy. Okay, we are here with Suzanne Spanner. How are you today, Suzanne? I'm doing great. Thank God. How are you? Wonderful. Thank God. Okay, we appreciate your time and sharing your world with us. So, First, let's tell our audience, what is it that you do professionally? I am a meeting matchmaker. I started my own travel agency in 2010, about 13 years ago, after working in the hospitality industry for a dozen years. I worked for Marriott and Ritz-Carlton, and primarily I was a group sales manager, and when... um, I decided it was time to leave that industry and start my own business. I now help clients book meetings and events at hotels worldwide. So before I was really in Atlanta, just selling hotels here. And now I have the opportunity to work with clients and book them in any destination that they would like to go. Wow. Okay. So tell us, please tell tell us your story about, I mean, we want to ask a lot of questions about what you do and how, what that involves and challenges the industry, et cetera. But tell us, tell us your story about how you got to originally working in the hospitality industry. Sure. And just let, let's hear it. Let's start from the beginning because we don't know anything. Okay. So ironically, um, I went to Penn State University and State College, Pennsylvania. They, they refer to it as Happy Valley. It's a really wonderful place. Um, at least for me, I had a wonderful, wholesome experience going to college. My sister is a few years older than me and she went to Penn State. So I only applied to that school. I didn't apply anywhere else. I was really hoping to get in. I love the campus and the programs. I mean, there's just so much, um, so many wonderful things to do there. And I applied early summer session. So I got out of high school, went straight to college summer session. And one of my friends said, oh, an easy major to get in at Penn State is, um, it's called hotel restaurant management. I'm telling you this because it's so hysterical. That's how I applied to Penn State. And I got in summer session hotel restaurant management. I started out summer session with that major and quickly decided, well, I don't know if I want to go into the hotel world. I don't know if that's my passion at that moment. 
maybe I should get a business major. I really like numbers. My dad happens to be a mathematician. So I switched to the business program and accounting was my major at the time. So fast forward through college, um, I think it was my junior year of college, I was in one of the accounting classes and my professor who was outstanding made me realize that I do not want to be an accountant. (laughs) And I told him, I think at the end of one of the classes, I was like, it's really interesting. I thought I wanted to go into accounting, but taking your class, I really don't think it's for me. And he said, perfect. But what was was it Yeah, well, sorry, sorry. (laughs) He said said to me, perfect. He's like, that's what we want. I said, what is it? I don't understand. I'm still confused. What does it mean? That's what you want. I thought you want me to be an accountant. He's like, no, this is the weed out class. This is where we can tell if somebody is really committed or not. So I think somewhere in the class, and again, he was an amazing professor. He was young and energetic and like very passionate about accounting. I just grew bored of the credits and debits. And it was just very monotonous. It didn't feel right to me long-term. Like I enjoyed it and it came easy to me, but it wasn't something I felt like I was going to thrive in. I thought I would get bored very easily. Mm -hmm. So I spoke to some advisors and people at at campus, like, what should I do? Like, you know, junior year at college, it almost feels like this isn't a good time to be switching. You know, I was already full speed ahead. So I decided to switch to be a finance major, which looking back was was fine, you know, because I like numbers and it kind of went nicely going from accounting to finance. But after seeing my career progression, which we're getting into, um, I probably would have been much better suited to stay in hotel restaurant management since I wound up in the hotel world. I would have learned a ton. Penn State's program is phenomenal. Or I would have liked to have switched and gone into marketing because now I realize how much I enjoy marketing. But at the time, it was fine. I graduated with a finance major. And Penn State has this career um, center where they bring companies from all over to us. So it's really very amazing for a student getting out, like, how how are you going to find a job? So Penn State's Career Center helps do that. So they do like a matching process and you kind of look through all the different job potentials or companies and say, like, this this is something I might want to look into. And I remember putting my name in the hat, so to speak. They have a matching system in the computer, but I'll just, for simpler terms, because I don't really know how they do it technically, um, I put my name in the hat for, let's say, five or 10 companies. And out of those companies, I remember specifically four that were interested in interviewing me. So those four, when they were on campus, we set up a time. I went to the interview, the career center. And those four companies all pursued me. So by the time I graduated college, I had four job offers and I could have gone and become a financial advisor, which, you know, a finance major. So it was like American Express financial advisors. Um, Cigna insurance was looking into me and that company was in Connecticut and I was very interested in them. But when I found out what my job would be, they wanted me to kind of evaluate burn victims and see how much money they should pay them out because their insurance. I was like, that doesn't sound very rewarding. It sounded not so good because they didn't want to pay them very much. Uh So I was like, not so much for me. And then Kimberly Clark, um, I would have had to move to Ohio, which was okay. I was very open to moving, but Marriott International came after me um, very strongly. And at the time, I don't know if you know this, Marriott used to own retirement homes. They used to um, manage them. And at the time that I graduated college, which was the late 90s, they were opening 25, what they called Brighton Gardens. That was the name of the retirement community across the country. Okay. So um, at 
my last semester of college, my cousin was um, dying of colon cancer and I was driving to visit her every weekend. And I sat with her and said, like, what should I do? These are my four offers. And she and I really hashed it out the most of anyone. I would say she really got to, to the soul of like, what would be best for me? And she said, what makes you happy? Like, what's going to make you happy? Because monetarily, they weren't that far apart. I mean, maybe one was like 5,000 more than another, or, you know, they were pretty much online. And I was stressing out to make the right decision. And she said, what's going to make you happy? And I said, well, I like helping people. I was, you know, visiting with her all the time. And the job that they offered me in Brighton Gardens was to be a controller. So I was going to oversee all of the finances for this retirement community. But I would have the opportunity to get to know the families and the residents. And for me, at least talking it out with her, it felt like I would be making a difference in people's lives. So I chose that option. I did my training in Delaware. And then the company said, where do you want to go? And they handed me that list of 25 cities. And I looked at the list. And for personal reasons, I was like, you know what? I'm ready for an adventure. And I said, I would like to go to San Diego. I grew up in Philadelphia. (laughs) And I went to state college, right? So like... I said, I want to, you know, go to San Diego. So they flew me out. I interviewed with the general manager and we got along great. They were opening, as I mentioned, a brand new facility. So um, when my training ended in Delaware, they literally packed up my belongings, my car. They shipped everything across the country. I moved to San Diego and I helped open a new facility in Del Mar, which is north of San Diego. Um, I did everything. I did Medicare billing. I did assisted living, independent living. We had different sections. We had a special care unit for Alzheimer's patients. Um, or I should say residents. We didn't call them patients. And I got to know their families. And I spent a good year and a half doing that, um, opening the building, just a lot of um, fanfare. You know, a lot of Marriott executives would fly out because it was brand new. And this, this was like a new industry they were building. Um, so it was very exciting, but within that year and a half, I would say, again, I wasn't on the medical side. I really got so close to the families and a few residents started to pass away. And one resident happened to take her last breath right outside my office. I was the billing office, right by the front desk. They wheeled her out of the dining room. It was like this big emergency. And I was like rubbing her back, telling her it's going to be okay. And she took her last breath. And it was life-changing for me. I had never been by someone's side when they passed away. And it was also devastating. And so she was the first. I remember her name. And then I remember the second lady who passed away. By the third, I was like, I don't think I could do this. (laughs) Um, I didn't have the emotional wherewithal to continue in that particular industry. And at the time, I had already started talking to some of the regional directors about moving over to the hotel side. So I really loved Marriott, the hospitality, the fan. It's, it's a family run business. Mr. Marriott passed it down to his son. And I felt a part of something um, besides the fact that they had that at the time, I think it was over 2000 hotels. Now they're over 3000 hotels. So I thought I'll just transition over. So they offered me a job to go into finance in L.A., and I wasn't ready to leave San Diego at the time. So I just needed, Does that mean to be a controller for a an hotel? Assist, yeah, like yeah. an assistant director of finance. It, it would be like a controller in the hotel side. In a particular hotel or in the whole for the whole chain? No, just in Los Angeles. They had okay. like one hotel they had in mind. And I said, I'd rather wait and see if something opens in San Diego. Um, the weather just, I had become good friends. I had a lot going on in San Diego that I wanted to stay at the time. And 
So fast forward, some things changed. And I said to um, the director, the regional director, I was like, is, is there anything else that I could do? Do you have any other ideas for me? So they, they told me about this corporate job as an on-site trainer. They called it on-site change management. Um, they were doing a project where this is very um, funny because I'm not a technical person, but I wound up <laughs> having a technical type of job. People in the hotels, in every department, so we're talking housekeeping, laundry, you know, banquets, the kitchen, they were writing out schedules for their associates by hand and posting it, let's say, on a, on a board. So, like, if you had to come in on Friday from 8 to 4, it would be your name, 8 to 4, come in. <laughs> um, so you could see that was becoming antiquated. Again, this was in, this was in 2002 that this project was starting. So they got a system, Marriott purchased a package, labor management scheduling, and they needed people to go around to each hotel and teach every department how to enter all of their associates in. There was like a whole system, how to change their time. It was so much easier if they just had to like shift, you know, a little scroll thing, whatever. So everything became automated once they entered the schedules in the computer, and then it automatically went to payroll. And it just was a much smoother system. But for anyone that doesn't like computers or technology, they didn't want to do it. So they needed people like me. They had a team of 50 of us that wound up going around all the hotels and literally sitting next to a person and like, here, let me show you how easy it is and like helping them along. At the same time as that, they started a new system on the accounting side um, where before, let's say a company I'm making up like IBM wanted to have a meeting at a Marriott. So each individual Marriott was checking, obviously IBM, everyone knows, I'm just using as an example, was checking IBM's credit. Does IBM pay their bills on time? Um, You know, are we going to approve them for something called direct billing where they don't have to pay the full bill up front? They can pay part of the bill and pay the rest later. They need to check that, you know, you're in good standing. So Marriott realized we have so many hotels were wasting labor. Each individual hotel is checking credit on each of these companies. So they made that also streamlined. They opened a new business service center called Marriott Business Services in Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And all of the hotels were then going to, on the computer, the sales and events team would ask for credit and check and see if everything was good. So they're the ones interacting, the first person interacting with the client. And then this Marriott Business Service Center was checking with Dun & Bradstreet and making sure everybody's credit's good and going back and approving it. So that was the other part of my job. So I was on this team training about scheduling and credit and really getting to know the entire hotel operation. So wow. my first introduction to hotels was like, here you go. You get to meet everybody. I met the general manager. I met all of the executive team and I met everybody in every department. So the cool thing was I got to see what I liked. And I realized that the sales team had the most fun. Mm. They were whining and dining the clients. They were the ones, you know, signing big contracts. They were the ones getting to go on on trips if they, you know, met their goals and they got bonuses. And I was just blown away. And then a few of the directors of sales and marketing would come up to me at the end of my training. I was training anywhere from like 50 people to hundreds, like five, 600 people. Because some of the hotels, you know, the associates, there was like a thousand rooms. So they have a lot of associates. So they'd come up to me and they're like, you really should think about getting into sales when this project's over. And I said, sales, I was going to go back to accounting and finance and whatever. And they're like, no, you really need to get into sales. So I said, I haven't ever been in sales. (laughs) So they told me that what I was doing with this project was technically selling the team on why they should use the software. 
Mm-hmm. And they were showing me how I had the sales skills. I was doing presentations. I was in front of rooms. I was, I was the one that made all the PowerPoints for the whole team. And can I ask a question? Who, who in the an organization be the one to to coach you about where you should be in the organization? Well, so at the time it was just like nice to hear, and it was just something I put in the back of my mind. And I was still very committed to the project. So once the project started coming to a close. Um, I went to Tennessee to this business service center that I mentioned to you. Yeah. And I met one of the higher level people that started the, or maybe he didn't start the concept, but he was one of the founders of this business service center. And he and I, and another lady, a few of us went out to lunch and he said to me at lunch, I remember he looked at me, he goes, what are you going to do? This project's ending soon. Mm -hmm. And I had heard from his team, his direct reports, that he was the most phenomenal boss you could ever have, ever. And I don't know, it was like Hashem put it in my head. And I looked at him and I said, when the project ends, I want to work for you. Uh And then there was like silence. And he looked at me and he had this big grin on his face. Like, obviously, I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to flatter him. I was just saying, like, I've heard about you and... He had a team, I think they called like, it was like the fab seven, you know, I was like, I want to be on the fab seven. I want to like fab eight, whatever. I want to be on your team. So the project was coming to a close and he hired me onto his team. And so I wound up working at the Marriott corporate office. I moved from San Diego to Washington, DC. Well, it's actually Bethesda, Maryland. And I was up and back from Maryland to Tennessee. And so everything I had just trained the hotels on, I now trained the business service center letting them know, by the way, this is what we told the hotels. You need to now do what we told them that you're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. So we, a few of us, like we really helped this team in Tennessee get up to speed and we were kind of like a liaison. And if any hotels weren't transitioning well to this whole new process, my boss sent me back to that city, to that hotel. And then I would sit with the executive team and the general manager. And I would say, okay, what, what did we miss? Like, where do we need to go back? And then I would retrain certain departments. So it was just a very cool experience. It was like two years of my life that I I think it was like the highlight of my career. It was the most fun. I had the best boss. I got to travel. Marriott paid for us to go all over the country. Um, I went to 180 hotels. I really got to see the U.S. Um, I found that Atlanta, Salt Lake City, believe it or not, and Boston were like my favorite cities. And I hadn't really been to them before this project. So when the project ended and then this job with my boss, he's like, okay, we're running out of funds. Like the the business service center is up to speed. The hotels are up to speed. We need to get you in a hotel. He wanted to put me into a finance role because he knew my background. And I surprised him because I said, no, I've had these directors of sales tell me I would be good in sales. I'd like to try to go into sales. So he's like, I'll give you a month or two at the most to find a job in sales. If not, I'm putting you in fine. Like he didn't want to lose me from Marriott. He was great. He was such a good um, supportive uh, mentor. He's still to this day a mentor I call and I trust and respect very much. Um, So anyway, I wound up calling a gentleman in Atlanta. I had trained 11 hotels in Atlanta. And I said, is there any way you could consider me for a sales role? And I told him, you know, I have no pressure, but I have to get it a sales role before this time, or I'm going to go to finance. And I really think I would be great in sales. And I told him why and what these directors had told me. And his answer was, I've never seen anyone from finance or with a finance background do well in sales. He's like, I've never seen it happen. So I said, are you willing to try? And he went to those hotels and he created a position for me 
and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia in 2002. I've been here over just over 20 years now, mm-hmm. and I never expected to be here this long. <laughs> I thought I was coming to get my foot in the door and that I was going to just do my thing and keep moving around. But um, I can add a piece of my Jewish story to this part, if you'd like, because sure. it's yeah, coming to mind. Sure. I'm saying 20 years ago, I'm like, wow, what happened when I first came? So when I first came to Atlanta, I didn't. I don't know if I gave this part of my background. I grew up reform in Philadelphia. I had a bus mitzvah. I went up to the Torah and, you know, the whole thing. So when I came to Atlanta, I wanted to be a part of a synagogue, but I didn't really know where I belonged. I didn't have, um, trying to think, I didn't have any Jewish friends in Atlanta. I had a few girlfriends that were Catholic that I had met in my travels or from work. And um, one of them actually became my roommate. And I decided, you know what, I need to start making some Jewish friends in Atlanta. So I called, they had this number, I think it was called, um, it might have been called Yacht Atlanta or Shalom Atlanta. It was something, there was like a phone number that you call for help if you're new to Atlanta and you want to get involved Jewishly. And I said to them, I don't know where to go to synagogue. Friday night's coming up. I'd like to try to make friends. <laughs> I told the lady, I was like, I don't know anyone Jewish in Atlanta. So she said, oh, where do you live? And we were like analyzing what might be the best synagogue for me to go to. So she said, I think we should go to the temple. I said, great. The temple happened to be the largest reform synagogue in Atlanta. And it was very close to my apartment. It was about 10 minutes away. So that Friday night, I drove to the temple. It was literally like my first Friday night in Atlanta. I remember thinking, like, I got to get in. If I don't start now, like, I'm just going to get busy with work. And, you know, how am I going to make Jewish friends? So I went to the temple that night. And there's this gentleman in Atlanta named Sam. And people refer to him, his nickname is Shabbat Sam. And he started a group. I don't know how many years before I went to the temple that night, but he started a group in Atlanta where they would rotate synagogues every Friday night. This group of people would, he had an email list and he would say, this week we're going to the temple. This week we're going to this synagogue. And he every week would switch it. It was never the same place. And so that week happened to be the week that Shabbat Sam emailed out to his group. Let's all meet at the temple, which was great for me because otherwise I don't know if I would have met anyone that night. (laughs) And so there was about 30 single people in their, I was in my 20s, so they were probably mostly in their 20s, some in their 30s, um, all at the temple that Friday night. And I looked over this girl next to me and or nearby me, and I said, what's going on tonight? Like, is there an event? Why are there so many people? Like, I could tell. It wasn't like they were all part of that synagogue. It looked like there was an event. So she said, oh, are you part of Sam's group. And I said, who's Sam? I don't know anything about it. So she explains the whole thing to me. And she says, oh, Sam told us all to meet tonight at the temple. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, we go out to dinner. So every week, he tells us where to go for synagogue. And most of the time, they meet at this one Chinese restaurant. But um, she said, sometimes we rotate restaurants. So you're welcome to come with us. Why don't you come to dinner with us tonight? I said, great. I don't have any plans. I came here to make make friends, to make Jewish friends. I told her. She was a very cute girl. Um, So anyway, we, you know, we spent the time at the temple and then we went to this restaurant for dinner. And that night, a girl, another girl was there and showed up for dinner and she sat across from me and she was very bubbly and outgoing. And we became like instant friends. Another girl came. So I started making my Jewish friends, which is like, was so important to me. So this other girl who came that she said to me, I don't always do Shabbat Sam's group. She's like, I have a few places I like to go. So I said, where do you go? So she tells me her two favorite synagogues in Atlanta, and they both happen to be conservative. So I said to her, I don't mind conservative. I, when I lived in San Diego, went to a conservative synagogue with my friends there. So like, sure, let's do that. 
So sometimes we would be part of Sam's group and sometimes we would just go to these two conservative scenarios. We would switch off. And she introduced me to another friend of hers and he became a good friend of ours. So the three of us would always meet up and then we would sometimes eat with Sam's group, sometimes by ourselves. But it wound up being every Friday night I was going to synagogue, which I never went to synagogue every Friday night growing up. I went for high holidays and maybe here or there, if my mother was like, my mother was on the board at the synagogue. She liked me to come, you know, if there was a certain special thing going on, I don't know. So I wound up going every Friday night. And in San Diego, I did go almost every Friday night also. I, I was very into it. Um, and then we would have dinner on Friday night. But that was my Shabbos. Like Saturday, we didn't go to synagogue. It was like, you know, go to the mall, go to the movies, you know, hang out, sometimes catch up on work, whatever it was. So um, fast forward a few months in January, I had learned that the JCC was putting on something called Jewish University. I don't know if they do this in other places, but in Atlanta at the JCC, it was every Monday. I want to say it was like Monday and Wednesday night. It was twice a week after work for like two hours. And every rabbi in Atlanta was teaching a class and you could sign up for any class you wanted. So one of the rabbis that I signed up with happens to be an Orthodox rabbi um, who now is in my neighborhood. But at the time, I didn't know him at all. And he's a, he's part of the Sparty Shul. He runs the Sparty Shul um, down the street from my house. And so I went to his class. His class was called Holy, Holy, Holy. Don't ask me why I remember that. And he talked about Shabbos, like the entire semester, Shabbos, Shabbos, like why it's holy, everything about Shabbos. Now, growing up, I learned the Ten Commandments, and I knew that you're supposed to keep the Sabbath holy, but for whatever reason, I never questioned, what does that mean? I just heard it. It was just like, okay, that's one, like, do not kill, do not steal, do, you know, honor the Sabbath. But, like, why didn't I investigate that? I don't know. I was young. And so when he was talking about it, I was like, oh, this is interesting. I should be doing this. This is very cool. So at the end of the semester, I went up to him, and I said, is there any way I could come and check out um, Friday night with you, you know, your synagogue, your family, whatever. For I was like inviting myself for dinner to his house. So of course he's a rabbi of, you know, wanting probably to do Kirov. I didn't know anything about Kirov at the time. I didn't even know what that meant. And he's like, can you explain sure. to our audience? Can you explain to our audience the kind of, like what, what what's Kirov? Can you actually explain Kirov? You could probably do a better job than me. Okay, it just means outreach. In, in other words, Jewish. Like like they're doing at the Jerusalem, what was it called? Jewish University? Jewish University. Jewish University was to, was to reach out to the community and and get people more involved Jewishly, more knowledgeable Jewishly. So that's that's the idea of Kiruv. Is a, it means bringing close. So it's the idea of doing outreach, of, of reaching out to Jewish people to teach them about their own Judaism and hopefully get them more involved. So it was... It was interesting because it was every every shape and form. It was reform rabbis, conservative, con- reconstructionist, orthodox. It was everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took classes from different types of rabbis, different synagogues. It was just this one rabbi spoke to me the most. It's something about this holy, holy, holy and talking about Shabbos. And I was like, I got to go. <laughs> so I asked him, he's like, yes, for sure. He's like, my wife will be so happy. My children would love to meet you. He was just very warm and welcoming. So um, I went Friday night. I remember I drove to his synagogue. I parked maybe nearby. And then afterwards, we walked to his house. And on the walk to his house, there was this couple that was newly engaged walking ahead of me. And they were also having dinner by his house. And the 
mother of the of the call of the bride was was walking with me. And I'm only sharing this because I feel like it's an important part of my story, my personal story. Um, you sometimes, or I had an interaction with someone that turned me off completely. And I let that take over everything else that I had learned in that semester with that rabbi. So it happened to be on the walk. Um, she was trying to get to know me, this lady, and I mentioned that um, I probably at the time told her my roommate was Catholic, that my other best girlfriend was Catholic. Of course, I at this point had Jewish girlfriends as well. I told you from Shabbat Sam's group. So I was proud of myself. I was making my Jewish friends, but I wasn't letting go of any of my other friends. And her reaction was very strong. She felt confident that I shouldn't have these friendships, that it was detrimental to me. And she did speak to me in such a way that it was a huge turnoff. And it happens to be, again, I'm very open-minded. I was going to church with my girlfriends on their holidays. I didn't go up and get a wafer and I didn't kneel down on the pew, but I sat there. And for me, it was more of like a friendship thing. My friends wanted me to see what they were a part of. And I had never heard that you weren't supposed to go into a church. Like I, I didn't have a background that anything would be um, upsetting to me personally. So this woman was um, extremely um, sharp in how she spoke to me. And I went to the rabbi's house for dinner and I already felt a bit uncomfortable and uneasy and communicate with the rabbi, which maybe I should have. I wanted to be respectful. This is his guest. And, you know, her daughter just got engaged. So I had the meal. It was lovely. His wife was very um, kind. The children were singing and there was um, just delicious food. You know, they happened to be Persian. And I happened to think that I'm not like debating which food is better, but I happen to think they make very delicious food. Um, she had so many dishes. Like I left that night. I couldn't even imagine how people do this every week. Like she had such a spread and so many delicious things to eat. Um, and then when, you know, dinner was over, I thanked them and I walked back to my car and I drove to my apartment and that was it for me. I was done. I was like, not interested. I think the rabbi's wife followed up with me. Let's say like two months later, I happen to remember, um, this girl that was there was getting married and she happened to be getting married at a Marriott. <laughs> it happened to be a Marriott that I represented. So she said, we'd love for you to come to this wedding and be a part of the wedding with us. And I hadn't seen them since the dinner. And I said, what do you want me? For me, it was such a bizarre concept. You don't know me. Why are you inviting me to this wedding? Like, what do I have to do with it? I met, I met them one time. And also, you know, I had this weird interaction with the girl's mother. So I didn't tell anyone about the weird interaction. And she was like, please come to the wedding. The, the rabbi's wife was so um, insistent that it would be so important to the bride that I was there because I work for Marriott. If anything goes wrong, I could be there to help make it better. Really, she just wanted me at the wedding so I could experience the wedding. I've never been to a religious wedding before. Um, but she used it under the guise that I would be helping and because of my connections. And so I always like to be helpful. And I, you know, did work for Marriott at the time. So I thought maybe she's right. What if something goes wrong? Maybe I could help her. So I went to this wedding. And it was a sea of black hats, like literally, I'd never seen so many black hats in one room in my entire life. Um, and, you know, probably if I remember, 
looking back, there was probably separate dancing, separate seating, like a lot of things that I wasn't familiar with that was kind of new to me. And of course, they did not need my help. They offered me a seat and I had a a dinner and I met one of the bride's friends and we actually became like pen pals. We stayed in touch for a long time. Um, But again, and then I just like left the wedding and I was like, okay, that was nice moving back to my doing my life like that. That's not for me. I don't want to be extreme. I like my girlfriends and um, I want to be able to just live my life. I don't want so many restrictions, like especially with who I'm allowed to be friends with. That was a bit much. So fast forward, um, you know, back with my friends, Shabbat Sam, not Shabbat Sam, Friday night dinner, going to synagogue every Friday night. And then I was saying the girl that I met had a good friend that happened to be a guy and he would hang out with us. He met someone. They decided to get engaged and get married and he invited me to his wedding. So I said, of course, like I'll go to your wedding. So what happens? I go to the wedding. This is, I've been in Atlanta at that point, three years. Okay. So it was like almost. How, how old are you at the time? Um, 2005. I was 28. I was, okay. I was three weeks shy of turning 29. Okay. So I go to his wedding and um, <laughs> my husband happens to be at the wedding. And I didn't know he was going to be my husband. So we saw each other at, after like the ceremony, there was like this cocktail hour. We walked by each other and I think I said, hello. And he's like, do we know each other? I said, I don't know. And then we didn't. And he was telling his friends, like, I'm out of here. Like he had gone to the wedding just to go to the wedding and leave. So I went to the wedding to like dance and eat and have a good time. (laughs) So his friends were like, well, we saw that you were talking to the girl over there. You should probably stay. And he's like, nah, like I'm out of here. So his friends convinced him to stay. It turns out that they sat us at the same table because we were both single. We were at like the single table. So we sit at this table and we're talking for like literally five hours. I I don't know if I've ever talked to anyone straight like that before, especially at a wedding. I didn't know the wedding was five hours. It was a, it was a really long long. wedding. (laughs) So the, the groom, he grew up in a house where his father believed in kosher. It was more like a conservative upbringing, but kosher was like very strict. So he had a kosher wedding. He had, um, it was at a conservative synagogue, but he had a kosher caterer come and do all the food. So I only mention that because I didn't know any different what I was eating because it wasn't kosher food, like just for a couple of people. It was the entire wedding was kosher. So it wasn't like the shrink wrapped meals. It was beautiful presentation. Everybody was eating the same thing. So we're at this wedding. I'm talking to my husband at the time. I didn't know. <laughs> and he, he asked me a few questions, which I learned after the fact were his test questions to see how open-minded I was. So my husband grew up reformed. But he later on, after college, became more observant. And I didn't know any of this. Sitting next to him at the wedding, everybody there has a yarmulke on their head because, you know, we're in the synagogue. So he had a yarmulke. I just thought he was being respectful. And um, he said to me, if I remember, he said, do you believe the Torah was given to Moses at Harsinai? Which is not a normal question that you ask someone the first time you're ever meeting them. But I don't know why I just went with it. And I said, yeah, of course. Like, what do you mean? And he says, do you think that the Torah was written by God or by man? And I said, what is this? I said, of course, it was written by God. 
So in his mind, of, he was like, had, had you thought about that before? Had you thought about the answers to the question? No one, no one ever asked me that before, but um, I guess through growing I have a, I had a strong relationship with God. I didn't call God Hashem. I just spoke to God freely. And often um, there were a lot of challenging things in my life growing up. And I really needed to have God help me through them. So to me, something like the Torah, which I did learn about in Hebrew school, I went to Hebrew school. Um, I, I didn't believe something so important could be written by a human being. It was just kind of a internal, no one ever told me that. It wasn't something taught to me. Like I definitely heard the debates over the years, like people would debate if it was written by God or by man. And just intrinsically, I never questioned it. To me, it's like, no way a human being could not write this. I didn't even know all of it, but just the parts of it that I had heard (laughs) did not seem human it seemed divine so when he asked me it was I didn't I didn't hesitate I laughed because I was like is this a real question because I thought it was a joke but he's like no I really want to know what you think and I said God wrote the Torah so for him it was worth staying and continuing to get to know me I didn't know that's what he was doing at that moment I thought like this guy's a little bit crazy asking me all these Jewish questions but okay like what whatever I guess he's curious you know um, I do remember asking him at one point, like, aren't we going to dance? Because people were up and dancing. And he said, no, like, I'm really just enjoying talking to you. Um, again, I didn't realize with the food that there was any difference. And so and we reason, talked. And just, just in case people don't understand the nuance, he didn't want to dance because he wouldn't, he was already observant and he wouldn't want dance with a female. Correct. <laughs> okay. And interestingly, I was wearing, um, I was wearing a dress that was a long gown to the floor, like all the way to the floor, to my shoes. But it was like a tank top dress where you would see my arms. But because it was in synagogue in the ceremony, I had a shawl, like a pashmina, they call it, covering my shoulders. Mm. And I was dressed very modestly, what they call sneeze. I didn't dress that way because I knew anything about it. I just happened to like want to be covered when I was in the synagogue but when I was at the meal I don't know if it was the room was cold or what it was but I was still wearing the pashmina when I was talking to him and he said he noticed on his own that it slipped and I quickly covered myself Hmm. and so there's an essence of who I am that I didn't know existed back at that time that prefers that because I could have easily been like take it off and just be you know, wearing what I was wearing and showing my, my shoulders, my arms, whatever. And I didn't throughout that whole five hours of talking to him. Mm. Um, And again, I didn't do it for any other reason than it was just, it came natural to me to just keep it going, keep it on. I just, I find a few things of my story to be very interesting. Um, I, I grew up in a house where my mother would often say, my mother has now passed on, but um she would often say, if you've got it, I hate this expression, but she would say, if you've got it, flaunt it. Mm-hmm. And I I think for her, it was just, she thought it was like a cute thing to say, like, why not? You, you If you have a, a cute um, presentation, show it, like, don't hide it. And I would maybe because of that, want to do the opposite. Because so <laughs> huh? she was your mother. 
Probably because she's my mother, but also didn't feel as comfortable to me Uh to just, you know, do that. But it's interesting because when I eventually decided to take on modesty completely, it wasn't as hard for me Mm -hmm. as it might be for some people. It's a, it's a change, you know, I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy when I wore shorts and pants and tank tops and things like, and go to the beach and have on my bathing suit. But I also really admire this way of dressing where a person gets to know you for your insides and not necessarily be attracted to you based on your outsides. So um, anyway, that was just like a side story. So basically at the end of this wedding, my husband asked for my phone number and I said, like I was about to say yes. And he's like, but you should know a few things. And he tells me he's marriage minded. And I said, that's great. Cause you know, most of I had, obviously I told you I was just shy of being 29 that most of the people I had gone out with were clearly not marriage minded, even though they presented themselves that they would want to get married one day, they did not. So, um, that was actually a positive. Um, he happened to tell me he was also divorced and he had a child from a prior marriage. So I'll tell you, I'm mentioning this again because the open-mindedness that I had was not something I even knew I had. Like if someone had told me about him, I would never have wanted to go out with him. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being divorced or with a child. It's just complicated. And I wasn't looking for complicated. But I already got to know him. Oh, and then he says, oh, and I'm Shomer Mitzvahs. Hmm. Shomer Mitzvahs means guarding the mitzvahs, following the commandments. And I didn't know that. So I looked at him. I said, what does that mean? Are you Jewish? <laughs> After this whole conversation all night, I said, are you Jewish? Like, what does that mean? He said, he said, basically, it means I keep Shabbos, the Sabbath, and I keep kosher. I eat kosher food only. So I said to him, okay, but you're Jewish. That's okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I didn't know what in the world I was saying. And that's okay. Cause like, I was like, that's what you're doing. That's not what I'm doing, but right. that's okay for you. Like if you're Jewish. That's like my starting point at that point in my life. I only wanted to date and go out with a Jewish person. Cause I knew I wanted to marry someone Jewish and have Jewish children and raise them Jewish, like the whole thing. So um, for the first month that we were like going out, he would take me, of course, to kosher restaurants. And in Atlanta, I had never been to any kosher restaurants. I didn't even probably know they existed. <laughs> um, I had been to almost every good restaurant otherwise. What? You mean Sam's Group, the Chinese restaurant, Sam's Group wasn't kosher? Was not kosher. I can't believe it. Okay. Not even close. I, actually, I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. it was like it was like the Chinese restaurants I grew up in. You go and you sit down and they right away have a pot of tea waiting for you at the table with the crunchy noodles. Like it was. There you go. It was great. Um, and in Atlanta, there's only kosher Chinese takeout. There's no sit down kosher Chinese. So maybe that was, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. That's why we didn't go to kosher Chinese because there was no sit down. Okay. <laughs> um, so we started going to these kosher restaurants. And of course, in the restaurants, everyone knows him, but no one knows me. And there's like a lot of chatter. And um, I felt like every time we went somewhere, people were like staring at us. And it was like, like some of that was a bit intense for me because I was used to just going to restaurants and kind of being anonymous. Um, But in a way it was nice because then I started to get to know a few people in the community. Um, About a month into dating, he was going and keeping the Sabbath. So he would turn off his phone and, um, be very involved with synagogue and whatever eating and, you know, all the stuff I now know people do on the Sabbath. But at the time 
I was like, gosh, this is a really long time not to talk to somebody. I didn't hear from him from Friday night to Saturday night. And then Saturday night, we would go and have like a coffee date or, you know, talk and meet up and whatever. But eventually, and and by the way, this was probably the best thing that he could have done. He never once, besides eating kosher, because he ate kosher. So like that wasn't really a negotiable. And I didn't mind. But like to me, it's food is food. Like I wasn't so particular that we had to eat at my restaurants that I liked. Um, But for the Sabbath, he never once asked me to come. Never once said, do you want to check it out? Are you interested? He was just doing what he was doing. And I was doing what I was doing. And about a month in, I said to him one day, I was like, this is really strange. You're Jewish. I'm Jewish. You're keeping the Sabbath. I know about the Sabbath. Why am I not doing this? I, on my own, was like, something's not right here. And then I told him the story that I just told you about Jewish University and this rabbi and how I went Friday night. But I wound up telling him about the lady and how she scared me off. And I said, I wonder if you know this rabbi, you live in that neighborhood near. And he's like, yeah, he lives down the street from me. So I said, oh, really? I wonder if I was like laughing. I wonder if he would remember me. So he's like, hold on a minute. He's like very quick, you know, next thing I know, conference call, the rabbi's on the line. And I said, rabbi, you know, it's Suzanne. Do you remember me? And I said, you know, I was about to say we met at the JCT um, from the class. And he's like, new, where have you been? Like, what happened to you? So I wound up confessing and telling him all that happened with the lady and how she scared me away because she told me I couldn't have my Catholic girlfriends. I said, I wanted to still have my friends. Like, I didn't want to come back around here. And he's like, oh, I wish you would have told me. That's very extreme. We could have talked it through and whatever. He, like, made it much easier going. And I said, well, I'm wondering, can I come back for a Friday night meal to your house? But this time, can I stay and have lunch and like see what the whole thing is like can I have the whole Sabbath with you and your family so he of course said yes come this week (laughs) so I live at the time I lived in Buckhead which is about 15 minutes from this neighborhood so I packed a little carry-on bag and went to work and at the end of the day I drove over to the rabbi's house and (laughs) I lit candles with his wife and I probably helped whatever they were doing in the kitchen and it was just the way I remembered it the first time, but it was nicer because this time I realized like that what that lady had said to me shouldn't like put a damper on things. And so I stayed over. I slept. Um, I think one of his daughters like, you know, had an extra bed in her room. So I was like bunking with all these girls that were much, much younger than me. Um, very sweet. And all Sparty, like Persian, the food I told you, the house smelled delicious. And then I went to synagogue at their synagogue and I really appreciate it. It's it's like, um, there, it's a warm atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to his house for lunch. Pretty sure my husband met for lunch that day. And then we walked around the neighborhood and we were talking and I said, you know, this is actually pretty nice. I think I want to do it again. So he's like, Oh, you're going to ask the rabbi to come back. And I said, I don't know. Do you think it's weird? Do you think he'll have me back? I was like, is that too much? Like, I was just like blown away that here, come sleep over and bunk up with my daughters. It might have even been two daughters. I don't know how many girls were in that room that night. And my husband was like, well, you could ask him and see. So I asked the rabbi and he just had the biggest smile on his face. He's like, of course you can come back. So I went back the next week. And I even think that after Shabbos, what they call Moti Shabbos, they watch movies or popcorn. I just remember they all were hanging out. And I said, can I stay for this too? 
And they're like, yeah, stay. So I would stay till like late Saturday nights and go back to my apartment feeling very full. Like this family was so beautiful. All the interactions, the food, the singing, I just felt very lifted up. It was a very good, positive experience. Definitely better than what I was doing, like going to the mall or going swimming at the pool or gym or whatever it was. So then repeat the same thing the next week, the next week. So now I'm like going to the rabbi's house every week and um pretty sure I started meeting other girls in the neighborhood at that point. So um I remember staying at the rabbis for like at least two months and then I met at someone every else. Week. Uh, every single week? For every Friday. Yeah. Just take my little carry-on bag, go mm-hmm. to the neighborhood and... um this was in the time period when I was working at the Ritz Carlton. Oh, so, I didn't hear about this part yet. Yeah. So I had, <laughs> I had right before I met my husband, like a month before that wedding, I had, I had been with Marriott, the job they opened up for me when I first came, it was like small group sales, selling groups of 10 to 40 room, 10 to 50 rooms a night for Georgia, Tennessee, and Alabama, like 40 hotels, all different levels, courtyards, residence, and full service. Um, and then I transitioned like two two years, not even two years, a year and a half into it. And I went to work at the JW Marriott, which is like a kind of a luxury brand for Marriott in Buckhead. And I was working there for a year and a half and I did large group. So I went from 10 to 50 rooms to 50 rooms to let's say 400 rooms a night. Or conventions and, was, and things like that. Yeah, large group sales. I was on property, whereas the other one was a call center. I was like mm-hmm. with you know, 20, 30 people, we were all answering calls and I was the internet lead manager. So I caught all the internet leads. And so, um, they were very happy with me. I blew out my numbers. I, I proved that gentleman that someone can go from finance to sales and it's not a problem. Like I made all my numbers. So I went to the JW and I, the same thing, thank God I was very successful with the relationships and the selling. And, um, then I was thinking at that point I was leaving Atlanta I had an offer to go to California for to be like a global sales manager for Marriott, which means like owning accounts and helping the accounts book at any of the Marriott's anywhere. So they were going to move me back to California. And at the time, the Ritz Carlton also came after me and they were in Atlanta. And there's there was at the time two Ritz Carlton's, one in Buckhead and one downtown. And they if you were selling for them, you would sell both hotels. Mm-hmm. And so they were whining and dining me and doing everything they could for me to take the California job off the table. Mm-hmm. And um I guess when I was discussing it with some friends at the time and mentors, the thing that that persuaded me to stay was that the Ritz Carlton is one of the highest echelons. Like everyone wants to work for the Ritz Carlton that's in the hotel world or the four seasons, you know, like that caliber of service. And the training and the level that I personally could get to would be harder at a Marriott than at a Ritz-Carlton in terms of service. Like the service levels are first class. Like there's nothing that I've ever seen. Ritz-Carlton's amazing in terms of how they take care of their guests. So um, I decided to stay and I took the job with the Ritz-Carlton. And literally a month later is when I went to that wedding. I met my husband. Oh, so okay. I could I could have been out of here. I could have been in mm-hmm. California and, you know, that whole, my life would have continued maybe on a different path and I wouldn't have come around to this, but I wound up staying in Atlanta. And like I said, I never planned to stay here, but I had that job with Ritz Carlton for five years and 
the Ritz Carlton got to see my transformation. So I started with them in December of 2005. I started dabbling in Shabbos in the beginning of 2006. So only really a month or two into that job, I started getting involved with coming to the neighborhood. And then the rabbi and my husband and these other friends, I was telling you, I started making girlfriends and I would stay by them for Shabbos. And, you know, one of them had a baby and I was sleeping in the room with the crib and the baby would wake up in the morning and I was playing with her baby. And she'd wake up at like 7 a.m. and say, oh, my gosh, my baby slept in today. I said, "Nah, he's been up for two hours. I've been oh, playing no. with him. I didn't want to bother you, you know, because oh, no. I was like seeing she had a lot of kids. So, like, I was yeah. helping her. Um, so those influences were saying to me, I really think you should go off to Israel. You should go to Nebe Yerushalayim. Those influences, and your friends, all of your new friends. The rabbi, my husband, yeah, the girlfriend it. that I made that I was helping, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, a few rabbis actually were saying, you really should go to Nebe Yerushalayim. And I was like, go to Nebe. At this point now, I'm 29. I really want to get married and have a family. And I'm like, what do I need to go to Nebe for? What's Nebe? And so I start. For, for audience. You could tell them about Nevei. Okay, okay. So <laughs> Nevei Yerushalayim is a seminary that has, I, I don't know if all of their programs, probably not all their programs, but many of their programs are set up to teach the uh, girls who are did not grow up observantly Jewish to, about what it means to be observant and what to learn Torah. And, and they have a lot of, and, a lot, and, that's mo- how and most founded. of them are in their early 20s, I would okay. say. Um, I was very much on the older side of things to go. But they do also take people that are in their late 20s and early 30s. But the majority of the people there are like after college, um, you know, mid mid 20s, early mid 20s. So um, they were like, you should go to Nebe, you should go to Nebe. Now, I had been to Israel in college. Mm-hmm. I did a study abroad, I didn't mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, my junior year, I went to Tel Aviv University for a semester. That was my first time leaving the country and my first time in Israel. Okay. And I was there for about five or six months and I loved it. Like loved it. I told myself one day I'm going to live in Israel. I spiritually connected the people, the food. Um, I lived in Tel Aviv. So it was like a huge party scene. Like we would go out clubbing and um, I had the best experience. I went to Ulpan. I learned Hebrew. I would not say I speak Hebrew fluently, but I definitely can get by a little bit here and there. Um it was just a, an amazing, amazing experience. And then I went back in one other time. I think I went back in like 2004 mm-hmm. to Israel. Um, to, I have cousins in Kfar Saba, so I went back and visited. And I went with one of my friends, the girl that I met at Shabbat Sam's group. We went to Israel together. Um, so when they were talking about going to Neve, I wasn't nervous to go to Israel. Like I already knew, oh, I love Israel. When I hear, When I heard, you should go to Israel, I was like, why should I go to Israel? There's this program and like, you can only learn so much in Atlanta. You really could immerse yourself and like learn. I said, but I work at the Ritz Carlton. How am I going to a program? So then they're like, well, it's only six weeks. It's in the summer. So at the time that I was, you know, being introduced to the concept of Neme and I went online and I started researching it. It sounded very interesting, but I'm like, there's no way I could do this and still keep my job. Mm -hmm. So my husband told me that he had a job out of college um, working for Prudential and he also thought I can't go to Israel to yeshiva because I'm gonna lose my job he said it's just in your head it's not the reality if you're who they want which I was one of the top salespeople in the office like for all those years 
they're not going to like let go of you just because you want to go explore your spirituality. And so he really kind of gave me the courage to go talk to them um, because he said he was amazed when he went to his bosses, they held his job for a year and he was in yeshiva for a year. This was after college. And he called his boss and said, I think I have to quit because I'm going to, I want to stay for a second year. And the boss said, no, take a second year. And this was a non-Jewish boss that he had. Um, so he said, just try, see what happens. So I had two weeks vacation that I had earned and the program was a six week program. So instead of going straight to my boss, I went to HR and I asked human resources, like, is it even possible? Do people take off for like six weeks? I was thinking of doing this program and exploring my Jewish identity. And I was explaining it to her and she said, well, you know, our housekeepers, A lot of them, she told me, are from Africa, and they take a month off in the summer when we're slow, and they go to Africa, and we call it a leave of absence. So I said, how does that work? Can I do that? So she said, well, technically, you could do it if your boss approves it. We we have a policy at the Ritz-Carlton that you could take a leave of absence. A leave of absence means you don't get paid for that month because I didn't have enough hours, you know, time off collected for that month. You could, you could go over a month. You won't get paid and we have to hold a job for you. Um, and then you, Oh, she said, sorry, I'm fast forwarding. She said, you could take the leave of absence a month off and then you could tack on your two week vacation. So technically you could take your six weeks that you're asking for um, as long as your boss approves it. So my boss already wasn't so thrilled with me because of candlelighting. Um, I started keeping the Sabbath, which I didn't know I was keeping it. I thought I was just checking it out with the rabbi, but it was in the winter months when sunset is early, like let's say five o'clock. So our hours in the sales office was Monday through Friday, eight to six, Mm -hmm. and they were not flexible, eight to six, Monday through Friday. And there were people in my sales office that worked there for 15 and 20 years. There were some really long time sales professionals. And then there was me who was new to the Ritz-Carlton a month in. And I'm like, hey, um, to my boss, I need to leave to make it to this rabbi's house (laughs) by sunset. So um, they couldn't say no to me because it was a religious thing. But what they did instead is they said, print out the calendar of the sunset times. And we will let you leave. I think it was 30 minutes before sunset. So I literally had to be very organized and have my little carry-on bag packed and in my car. And I had to rush from Buckhead to the neighborhood, which is normally a 15-minute drive. But on a Friday at the time that I was allowed to leave, it was incredible traffic. And I would make it to the rabbi's house usually two minutes before candlelighting. Mm-hmm. And run in the house and like drop my bag and like splash water on my face and say, okay, I'm ready. Let's go light candles. So there were people in my office that were already complaining about the new girl that gets to leave early on Fridays Mm -hmm. because we've worked here for 15 years and we never got to leave early on a Friday. And we would like to go on vacation and leave early on a Friday. Everything was about the fact that I left early on a Friday. So I, I had some people in the office that were fine. They didn't care what I was doing because they were minding their own business. But the ones that were getting irritated, they were talking to my boss often and making a problem. So when I came to talk to her about my six-week leave of absence, and again, I'm in a sales revenue production job, 
Um, she right away said, no, you can't, you can't leave for six weeks. Literally. No. I said, I have two weeks vacation. She's like, nope. And I said, um, well, I talked to HR before I came to meet with you. And they said that I could combine the month with the two weeks and have the six weeks off. So as soon as I said HR, she looked at me like, I she couldn't believe that I did that, that I went to HR before talking to her, which I was just doing it to see if it's even a possibility. So she right away said, okay, go out of my office. Let me, let me get back to you. So it went from a no, no, no to a let me get back to you. Is she afraid? Was she afraid of HR because they can get make labor issues? Oh, she she could have gotten in trouble because uh-huh. she said no without checking into it. Uh-huh. She never uh-huh. found out the rules. She just said flat out, "No, we don't let salespeople take off for okay. six weeks." But these like, big corporations, you got to play by the rules, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying she could have got fired for it, but she definitely would have got talked to for an immediate, like it was an immediate, not even a second thought. Mm-hmm. So I go back to my office doing my thing. Literally like 5.55, she calls me to come back to her office right before the day's over. And I go in and now it's her and she's like the higher up director. And then there's another director between us. So now it's two of them and me. And I'm like, oh, I really put my foot in something. I'm going to be in trouble now. So she says, have a seat. And she's like, I called HR and I talked to them. And it turns out you could go for the six weeks. But she says, we don't have to keep your job. We only have to keep a job for you. So we don't have to guarantee your sales role. We just have to guarantee you a job. Mm-hmm. So I looked at her and said, okay, like no problem. And I was like about to get up to leave the room. And she's like, wait, don't you have any questions? And I said, I mean, I guess my only question is, is like, just to make sure I understand, you're saying I could go to Israel. And if I come back and you've replaced me in my sales role and the only job left in the Ritz-Carlton is to be like the housekeeper cleaning the rooms, the toilets, that you're guaranteeing I will have a job. That would be my job when I get back. And she said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I said, great. I'm going. She, like her mouth, if you could see the expression, she was like. They're buffing. They're buffing you. She thought I was for sure going to say for no chance. And I was like, okay, what's the big deal? That's fine. Because I know they weren't going to replace me. Right. And even if they replaced me, okay, I'll figure it out. When I get back, I'll be a housekeeper for a month, and then I'll go transfer to another hotel and be a salesperson again. Like, to me, it was like, okay, no big deal. So, anyway, um, I left her office. I started applying and booking my flights and doing all my stuff. And I remember counting the days, and it was, like, going to be six weeks and one day if I – actually went to the whole machine. Uh, it was like a machina, an introductory program. I, I needed a day for travel. So I wouldn't miss a day of this learning, this program. So I went back to her. Is there any way before I booked the flight? And she goes, Nope, you have exactly six weeks. So she made me miss a day of the yeah. seminary. Whatever, just to show you what I was dealing with. I was not dealing with someone that was like so like accommodating, right? <laughs> You're trying to find yourself or like this is great. It was like, nope, everything was you know, only what you're allowed. So I went off, you know, to Neve to this program. And I think around the time it was like two months before I went, I started having second thoughts. Like, what am I doing? What happened to my life? What happened to me going to the mall? What about the pool? Like all the things I was used to, I wanted to continue doing. 
And I said to this friend of mine that I started staying with after the rabbi's house, I stayed at her house. I said to her, um, I'm thinking about next week, just skipping Shabbos. Like, I'm not going to come to your house next week, but I'll come the week after. I just want to skip one week and go back to my life and see the difference. But this point, by the way, I had already committed that I'm going to Neve. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I even booked my flights and everything. Yeah. So I said to her, that's fine, right? I was looking for permission. She looked at me straight in the face and said, if you skip next week, I'm never going to see you again. And this is a girl who's not an extremist. Like, she's totally normal. The most wonderful friend I've literally probably ever met. It's like such a sweet, wonderful person. And I looked at her and started laughing. I was like, what do you mean? I just saw you. I've been seeing you every week. We're gonna. What are you talking about? She was like, what did the rabbi say? I was like, I didn't ask him. I only asked you. She's like, maybe you should ask the rabbi. So I went and called the rabbi. And I said, I was asking my friend Dana, like, can I skip next week? I'll see you the next week. You know, I was kind of like looking for her permission. And he said, what did she say? I said, she told me she'd never see me again. And I said, isn't that crazy? And he's like, she's a smart girl. And I said, you think just if I skip one week, you're never going to see me again? I'm already going to Israel. Like everything. And he's like, nobody gave me permission to skip Shabbos. Nobody told me I couldn't. I'm a grown person. You know, I'm 29 years old. I could do whatever I want. So it was about to be that Shabbos. And I got scared to skip because I really liked this new friend, Dana. Like really liked her family. And I didn't want to not see her again. So I told myself, I'll just go this week and I'll skip the next week. So I went that week. And some people talk about these moments of like the world opens up and like everything's aha. Uh-huh. For some reason that Sabbath, I was walking down the street, same street I had been walking down the last few months. And I heard the birds chirping and I saw the sky and I saw the leaves on the trees. And I remember like Hashem painted a picture for me that I was either just taking for granted or not dialed into but it was literally like lightning bolts like it was just I told I told my friends I was like I don't know what's happening to me I feel like I don't know this is like the most beautiful experience it was such a beautiful Sabbath that week like the food the music the singing everything but the world the nature I can't even describe it to you was just so alive I said to my friend, I think I changed my mind. I think I'm going to keep coming every week until I go to Neve. And then I'll decide if this is for me or not. So she smiled and said, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> so she's not allowed to tell me to, to break, you know, the Sabbath. I didn't know that. I just was like, why is she making this so hard on me? Why can't she say, sure, I'll see you next week. That's all I wanted. I just wanted somebody to say, no problem. I'll see you next week. And my husband, I never asked him what he thought. I just was asking my friends and the rabbi. The husband didn't even know that you were, you were still not married yet, right? No, no, we were no, still dating. Okay. Your husband didn't know that you were considering skipping a week. You he didn't know. I mean, oh, okay. afterwards, I probably told him and he laughed about it because he knew that Dana mm-hmm. and the rabbi told me the right thing. But I didn't ask for his opinion. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really interested in him weighing in because I wanted this all to be like my decision, not that I'm doing something because of someone else. So. Basically, I went off to Neve. I kept the Sabbath for six months going off to Neve. 
And I got there and a week into being there, I know you're going to be thrown off by this part. My husband calls me and says, I don't think we should go out anymore. We've been dating for six months. Remember marriage minded. He gets me on my way without ever telling me. He did recommend Neve, but other people did as well. And I said, what do you mean you want to break up? I don't understand. I said, I thought I'm here to decide if this is for me or not. Not for you. You already know this is for you. He's like, no, I don't think it's a good match. Like I thought about it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't go out, whatever. So we break up and now I'm in Israel completely confused out of my mind. Like Hashem, what in the world are you doing to me? You introduced me to this person who introduces me to all of this, who then tells me we're not a match. And so I went through my time at Neve and I was on my own. Not that it would have mattered. He was in Atlanta. Like it wasn't like we were going to be going out, but I for sure thought we would be in communication and talking and emailing and all the rest of it. So now like this is all I have. Figure this out for myself. Is this for me or not? Like I had to get my head in the game. So by the time it was, the six weeks were almost over and probably for like the two weeks at the end, I was speaking to this one rabbi that I felt very close to. And I said, I don't know if I should stay here or leave. Maybe six weeks isn't enough because people stay in Neve and they can learn all year round. It's a, it's not just a summer program. It happened to be, I signed up for the summer program, but once you're there, if you want to extend, you can extend. So the rabbi said to me, I don't think I can decide that. He's like, do you want Das Torah? Can you explain Das Torah to everyone? The rabbi was deferring to a greater, let's say a higher authority, meaning somebody who was, um, it's a very hard concept to explain, but Das Torah would be uh, asking the opinion of somebody who was totally immersed in in advising people and and has the ability to advise people from just being totally immersed in Torah learning and in self-perfection and, and has just like the, even their opinions are coming from, are sourced from something higher. That's the best thing to do. (laughs) Yes. So my rabbi, Rabbi Bear, his rabbi was Rav Moshe Sternbach. Okay. So Rav Moshe um, from what I understand, is just learning all the time, and mm-hmm. I learning didn't know him. Writing, yeah. huh? Learning, writing. teaching, writing, yeah. Right. So I didn't know him, but I had heard from Rabbi Bear, like Rav Sternbach's the one that will be able to help with this decision. And he said, "But you have to know if you go for Das Torah, you ask a rabbi of this caliber or this, you know, situation where you're coming to him for an answer. You have to do what he tells you." Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm not going to bring you to him unless you do whatever he tells you. And I had never asked anyone. I didn't even know what the concept you just described to everyone is. Like, I didn't know what Das Torah was. I never heard of any of this. I just wanted Rabbi Bear, who was my rabbi that I felt comfortable with, to tell me, stay or go. I wanted help because it's such a big decision. Mm-hmm. I would have had to quit my job if I stayed and, you know, basically just immerse myself in Israel. And I was... 29 and a half years old. So I really didn't know what's the best thing to do. So Rabbi Bear said, okay, I talked to Rav Sternbach and he's willing to see you. So for like the last two weeks, as I said, of being there, I kept saying, when can we go see Rav Sternbach? When can we go see him? When can we go see him? He's like, oh, we're going to go. We're going to go. Don't worry. We're going to go. Oh, I said, okay, great. Like, you know, am I getting on the plane? Am I staying? Am I going? So he said, 
Rev Sternbach wants you to write a list. Write out the pros of staying and the cons of staying. The pros of, you know, here versus Atlanta. So I wrote out a list. I had a piece of paper and it was very full. Very full of why I should stay in Israel and very full of why I should leave Israel. Um, I then said to Robert, okay, I wrote the list. When are we going to see Rosh Hashanah? He said, I'm going to try to get you in tomorrow. And then it was like, I'm going to get you in tomorrow. I'm going to get you in tomorrow. And I, I literally said to him, whatever this rabbi tells me, even though I've never met him, I don't know anything about him, I'm going to do whatever he tells me. I promise you whatever he tells me I'm going to do. So Rabbi Bear said, okay, I'm getting you in. I said, Rabbi Bear, at this point, I was like, my flight is tomorrow morning. Am I staying or leaving? He's like, we're going tonight. I said, tell me where. I met him. We went to Rev Sternbach's study in his apartment. He had a room that had so many books, um, beautiful Torah books. I've never seen so many books in one room, even probably to this day. He had a study and he had this long table in the middle. And Rav Sturmuk was at one end of the table and I was at the other, like long table across from each other. And Rabbi Bear was up by him and he had my piece of paper. And he's reviewing my paper and he looks up at me. He asked me a few questions just to get a little detail on my letter, on my paper. And I answer all his questions and he says to me, you need to go back to Atlanta. Hmm. I think at the moment I was devastated. I was like really hoping he was going to tell me to stay, but I was so torn if I should stay or go. And I really knew that if it was up to me, I wasn't confident I was going to trust myself to make the right decision. So he gave me a few um, reasons why he felt I should go. And then he basically wished me good luck. And I left his study. It was very late into the morning hours. And a few hours later, I was on the plane back to Atlanta. It was a shock. I had packed my bags just in case because I didn't know I'm packing them, but I could always unpack them. Neve had said if I want to extend, I could have extended. So it was like I could have easily just said I'm staying longer. So I flew back. Um, Okay, so I was on the flight back from Neve. I had been gone for six weeks. I went back to the Ritz-Carlton. And there definitely was a sense of like discomfort. My um, colleagues, like I mentioned, the ones that weren't happy already that I was leaving early Fridays were upset that I was gone for six weeks and some of them were covering for some of the slack. But um, surprisingly, by the end of that year in 2006, I not only hit my numbers, and this is not meant to brag, this is where I really feel like Hashem was showing everyone else around me, not me, but them. Look what look what can happen when you transform yourself. I wound up being the top salesperson in the office for 2006. And I won something that the Ritz-Carlton calls the keys to success. And in January of 2007, they brought all of us outside the hotel. And the regional sales director drove up in a Mercedes Benz with a big red bow around it. And they presented it to me. Wow. Um, so I won the car, you <laughs> the coveted the car, car <laughs> you know, which for me at the time, I didn't, I didn't care about having a sports car. I was not interested in a Mercedes, but I was blown away by Hashem's kindness. I went and did this adventure to learn more and become closer. And I'm not saying if you do that, you'll win a prize <laughs> or get a reward. But I did feel like it was a way to show everyone um 
I, I still showed up to the job. I still took care of my obligations. I still met and exceeded all expectations of me. And I was gone for six weeks. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was that was what the car represented. It didn't represent like I got a Mercedes and it was a it was a lease. It wasn't like long. It was a 13 month lease, but it was it was a very beautiful time. It was, but the, it was a, the Ritz Carlton couldn't afford to buy you the car for keeps. No, they just they didn't do that. They had a, a <laughs> program with Mercedes. I think it was a, a nice little arrangement. They worked out <laughs> with each other. Um, but it was, it was very cool. It was very cool. I was, I was full on keeping Shabbos kosher, had this, you know, new ride. And, um, I don't know where to fast forward to. I guess it was like sometime in that year, um, my husband came around and came back and got in touch with me and we got back together, but I I had to understand. It took a while to, to understand like, well, what was the point of this whole breakup? (laughs) Um, and then we got married and we, I was still working the Ritz Carlton for another year. And somewhere in that first year of marriage, I, you know, got pregnant and was on my maternity leave. And I really did a lot of soul searching. Like, do I want to go back to that environment with a newborn? And towards the end of the maternity leave, I remember like my last week before I was coming back to work, my, my director, not the, higher up director, the one in the middle said to me, Oh, you know, on the phone, I'm, we're so excited. You're coming back next week. We already have you signed up to do a reception and an offsite sales thing and whatever. She had like three things lined up for me and two were in the evening. And like, let's say one was on Sunday. Um, so it wasn't like the eight to six that I told you Monday through Friday was going away because you're doing night events. It was like, Oh, well on this day, you're going to be there from eight till eight at night. And I had this newborn baby, like a three-month-old boy that I was completely madly in love with that I didn't want to even leave to begin with. So I heard all of that. And then I remembered how strict the eight to six was, except for, you know, they were still having me turn in a sunset calendar for the entire five years I worked there. I was turning in a sunset calendar. Um, And to the minute, I couldn't leave before 30 minutes. It was always to the minute. I thought, I don't, I don't think this is for me. I should not do this. This is no way for me to raise a child. I'll be stressed out and I won't, I won't be able to really be the mom that I want to be. And at that point I was 32 years old. So it was not like a young, you know, mom, I was pretty mature and had my ways and things said about me. And my one client that I had from the JW Marriott, we stayed in touch all those years. I had always told her my dream was to be a third party and to help clients like her book hotels worldwide and not be just stuck to the hotels in Atlanta. And um, the way it works is my clients don't pay me. The hotels pay me a commission. Um, So I I had told her my dream. And so when I was on a maternity leave, she kept checking on me. What are you going to do? Are you going to go back to work? What are you going to do? And I said, I still have that dream of starting my own travel agency. And she said to me, and I love her for this. She's like, if you do it, I'll, I'll work. I'll let you do all my groups you know, I'll be your client. And I said, if you would be my client, that would mean the world to me. I would do it in a heartbeat because just knowing I was having her, she did like at the time, like six events a year. Now she does like a dozen events a year. But at the time it was like around, you know, anywhere from four to six events. And so um, I resigned. I resigned from the Ritz-Carlton at the end of my maternity leave. I did not go back. And a few months later, so I was just like at that time, just stay at home mom, 
a few months later, this client called me. Her name's Patty. And she said, I have a meeting for October. Do you want to do it? This was like in May of 2010. And I said to her, can you give me a month? I'm not even a business. Like I have to get a license. I have to get my travel agency thing going. I have to get a website. I had to do everything. It's like, you have a month. So in that month, I created my name, meeting matchmakers. I created my logo. Um, I want to show everyone since it's a video. I painted my logo just because I love it so much. Nice. It's like two people shaking hands, you know, and it's mm-hmm. supposed to look like a smile. Awesome smile. Okay, service with a smile, meeting matchmakers. Um, so I came up with that name because, you know, Yiddish mama, like I like to try to set people up to get married. So matchmaker. So I was like, oh, I do meetings for people and I match them together, the client with the hotel. So meeting matchmakers became my, my company name. And so in June of 2010, I started my business and she was my first client and I did a meeting for her in October of that year. So my first year in business, I made money. Um, and then from then on, I just said, okay, I'll just try to add one. I told myself, I'll just add one new client a year because I had my son. And then two years later, I had my daughter. And then three years later, I had my other daughter. So I was just trying to, you know, balance all of the things that you have to do to be a mom. And I kept my kids home until they were two or three, mostly three. And then I sent them to a play group just for like a few hours. So it wasn't like there was much time to really build a business. So I did. I just added one new client a year. So by the time my little one was, you know, ready to go, all three of them were out at um, school. I had maybe like a half a dozen clients, five or six. So in 2017, when my youngest was three and she was for the first time out of the house, let's say even if it was just like till one o'clock or three Mm -hmm. o'clock, whatever it was, I got onto LinkedIn. That's when I got onto LinkedIn and I started Really, I was on LinkedIn since 2009, but it was like as a Rolodex, just if I met you, I wanted to know who you were and put a face to a name. But in 2017, when everyone was out of the house, I started posting content. And then I started seeing people were doing videos and I asked my rabbi, could I do a video? Like, how does this work? And he said, if it's for the purpose of growing your business, 100%. If it's just so you could have your face out there in social media, don't do it. And I said, no, the only reason I'm on LinkedIn is to grow my business. So I started doing videos. I don't really do videos so much now, but at the time I was really like making videos, trying to get people to know what I do, get to know me. And in 2018, I did a a few really big events. One was this LinkedIn Global in New Jersey, then the LinkedIn Meetup in New York. I helped organize with um, someone and like a thousand people came and I was a speaker and like people started to know who I was and I started really growing a following. And I found that because of these events, I was um, putting together and the attendees, a lot of them happen to be religious. It turns out my followers are probably the most majority are from, you know, Jews, which is interesting. At the time, I didn't realize how great that would be for me. I was just like happy to connect with people that look like friendly and normal and, you know, not some people on LinkedIn you could be a little sketched out about. So fast forward, I now have, and this is just because I, I love that I have so many connections that are referring me and helping me. I have a nice following and somewhere in like 2018, 2019 people hopped. I don't know what figured out what I do. Yeah. And um, they start reaching out to me and said, you know, I have a hard time booking my kosher group at hotels. The hotels mm-hmm. don't want my business because from a hotel perspective, and I know this from my background, the whole goal is to sell out every night and to um, sell the meeting space with food and beverage and have 
the group be paying the hotel for that service. And they make a lot of money off of the food and beverage, more money than you can imagine. So if a kosher group comes and they can't eat the hotel's food and beverage, the hotel potentially could be losing money by saying yes to have the kosher group come. So you have to understand and negotiate and really help in those conversations with the hotels to figure out how to get them to say yes to take your group. They will say yes. You just have to figure out the balance and the right price point. They're not going to give it to you for free and let you just come and have your meeting and bring your own food and they make no money. But um, around this time, I coined myself the hotel insider. Since I worked on the inside, I understand the lingo and how to negotiate and how to do it. So I started getting more kosher groups. And since 2018, 19, of course, 2020, 21 was a disaster. I lost, I almost lost my business completely. I had to get unemployment. It was very hard. This COVID, everybody canceled all their events. I tried to find another job. Like it was just crazy, but this is what I love to do. So I really didn't want to do anything else. So by 22, it's, you know, 2022 now 23, it's like starting to all come back together. Um, I'm finding that more and more people are referring me and I'm booking more of my business now is the kosher groups. So what I was saying about my following, it's nice because I'm catering to an audience that really needs my service. Like the corporate groups that I do that aren't Jewish, they definitely need my help, but it's a lot easier for them to call hotels and navigate than for kosher groups to try to get a kitchen, let's say, or to let them come in and, warm their food and, you know, prep the food and like all the things that are involved with a kosher group, having a very beautiful experience. So um, I'm just grateful that I have this, you know, opportunity. I met someone like yourself, you know, LinkedIn has really done a lot for me in terms of meeting great people and helping um, help letting me help people to, you know, do what they want to do. Wow. Amazing. So we're we're in the planning stages, but uh, we're considering making a podcast fellowship convention, and we're looking at we're looking at San Diego. San Diego, perfect. San Diego, 150 students going out there. Is you someone I could call and you could help yes. me? Uh, help yes, yes, I would out? love to help you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, amazing. Okay, Suzanne, this is amazing. It was great to hear your story. I really I had no idea that the conversation was going to go in this direction, <laughs> um, and, but I was I was gripped, and, and I think that our listeners are going to love it. And it's definitely a change for us to just to get so much of that of that transformational story, and and, and it's, it's perfect. And Thank you. and you're gonna you're gonna share with me if there's people want to reach out to you. LinkedIn is probably the best way. Yeah, LinkedIn's great. Okay. Um, I could also offline give you my email, whatever great. whatever you think is best. I'm happy to talk to anyone um, that has questions or just if anyone can relate to my story. And um, I could say one thing that I didn't get to cover is it's not all roses, right? It's not like I became religious and then everything, the world opened up and everything's perfect. Um, I still have my family, my family of origin, my mother who I mentioned passed away and my father, my sister um, who are not religious. I would say of them, my sister's been very supportive and unconditional, but my parents were very um, upset. They felt rejected. They didn't like the fact that now I keep kosher because I couldn't eat in their house. Um, they didn't necessarily like my style of dress and the fact that I cover my hair. There's been like so many obstacles on my path that if anyone listening has these types of experience, I just want to tell you that 
you can still continue forward, even if people are trying to, quote unquote, get in your way. Um, I talked to my rabbis all throughout, and I was always told the same thing. If someone, anyone, tries to tell you not to keep the Torah and to break halacha, which is Jewish law, you're allowed to not listen to them, even though you're supposed to honor your parents. Because as you probably can tell from everything you've heard about me, it's very hard for me to um, grapple with these things. Like, which, how do I know which mitzvah is more important? Am I supposed to honor my parents and listen to them, or am I supposed to follow Hashem's laws and, and keep the Torah. So, you know, that's when I really encourage people to get a rabbi involved or talk to a, a trusted friend who might also tell you to talk to your rabbi. But um, just know that at the end of the day, you can still honor your parents and not let them talk you out of this. This is more important that you do what you feel is in your neshama and what's best for you in um, your relationship with God and not let anyone or anything get in the way of that. Thank you. So beautiful. Okay. Thank you for the helpful advice. And Suzanne, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Be well. Okay. You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.